0: Howdy, Rob Lee here, and we're going to get back to the truth in this art. But I want to do a little exercise with you. As you know, the truth in this art is an audio experience, so I'm going to ask you to do something a little different this time and visualize with me. I'm thrilled to reintroduce you to Forged Eatery, a true gem that captures the essence of farm to table dining in Baltimore. At Forged Eatery, they have mastered the art of sourcing local and seasonal ingredients, resulting in a menu that will leave you in awe. Their commitment to quality and to flavor is simply unmatched. Picture yourself, see, it's the visual, picture yourself uh, savoring their mushroom stew, a comforting and aromatic dish that transports you to a world of culinary bliss. The depths of flavor and the carefully selected ingredients will tantalize your taste buds. You can swap out and insert the focaccia, which is heavenly, or the irresistible cornmeal fried happy oysters. Each bite is a celebration of culinary mastery. Forged Eatery goes beyond being simply a restaurant. It's an immersive experience where the menu evolves with the seasons. Each visit promises a new and exciting experience for your taste buds, making every moment unforgettable. So fellow food fans, fellow food lovers, it's time to discover the magic of Forged Eatery. Let their innovative approach to dining and their passion for locally sourced ingredients transport you to a world of culinary excellence. Don't miss out on an extraordinary dining experience. Plan your visit to Forged Eatery today and let your taste buds revel in the true flavors of the season. It's time to indulge in a gastronomic adventure that will leave you craving for more. For more information, visit ForgedEatery.com. Welcome to the Truth in Art, where we navigate the crossroads of arts, culture, and community. I am your host, Rob Lee, and today I am honored to have an educator, curator, curator, and residence emeritus, who is also the guest curator, along with the Baltimore Museum of Arts Associate Curator of Contemporary Arts, Cecilia Wickman, of the exhibition, Eyewinkers, tumble turds, and candle bugs, the art of Elizabeth Telford Scott. He plays a key role in expanding recognition of Scott's intricate textile art, emphasizing its cultural significance and fostering community engagement. Please welcome the great George Sissel. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you, Rob. Thanks for the invitation.
0: Thank you for coming on. Thank you for making the time. Thank you for being on video with me right now. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, we, you know, I, I want to, you know, cover a couple of things in this this conversation. You know, I want to talk about the the art of Elizabeth Talford Scott, but also I want to talk about a bit about your career because I can't have you on here without you know getting some background from you, obviously. Um, so, you know, be, before we delve into sort of the the, the more current um, work, I want to go into sort of this introductory question that I use: uh, What was an early experience? that really profoundly like impacted you, influenced you into the career path in the arts, in curation, in that, that realm?
1: Well, I wish I could start very early on in my life, but unfortunately it did not happen until I was in college, uh, when I really had my first exposure and the exposure wasn't originally in visual arts. It was in performing arts in theater and in dance. Um, and I not just studied that but was was very involved with my minor in college, and through those two disciplines, I was exposed to a, a world of interdisciplinary arts, uh, and m- meaning that it wasn't just the, the script or or the choreography. But it was also all these other disciplines with the the music and the scenery and the sets and the costumes all that went into that together to make that world which first got me really interested in art and and through that two things happened one was of course i was exposed from that learning about artists you know who were these artists that did these sets who were these artists that designed the costumes and things like that but the most important thing I would say that influenced me in that early experience was not necessarily the specific discipline of dance or theater, but the collaborative approach of those disciplines. Because we know that the, it's very interesting when I think, when I reflect back on my own career and when the beginnings and where I where I am now, that my interest in collaboration did not begin by studying visual arts or art history began by studying these disciplines, which were collaborative or, uh, approach to, to begin with. And that's sort of what I started to adopt in my own, own practice. Yeah.
0: Thank you. Um, you know, as a person that I, I view this project, this, this, this podcast and the sort of approach, uh, being. Collaborative, obviously, you know, with, you know, I'm not I'm not good when there's no one else on the mic, you know, with me talking. And um, some, it sits somewhere in that sort of collaborative space, in that journalistic space, and in that art space, but definitely really huge on a collaboration point.
1: Well, I think also it's evident, and certainly in the podcast that I've listened to so of and knowing what your goals are, like... You you talk about the creative process constantly. It, it not just the product is not obviously the product is of interest and important and relevant without and have has meaning to it, definitely. But I find that that your interest is as much in exploring where is that process. Like you're saying, the first question you asked me, like you know, how did I get where I am? Like you want to know what my creative process was. Yeah.
0: Thank you. Yeah. So. You know, so collaboration, sort of, you know, the performance component, and just uh, reaching that at, at Michael, right?
1: Well, it didn't start at Mike; it ended at Mike. I, I took. I mean, it was a long process. I'd say it it happened. Uh, that opportunity, in terms of collaboration, really sort of happened when I did enter, uh, when I left that the performing arts world into the visual arts, uh, uh, when I had a gallery and then when I found the contemporary, and then my most recent, of course, part of my career was, was at, at Micah, definitely. You know,
0: so, so speaking on Micah, um, and, you know, sort of, and, and not trying to fast track it, obviously, but, you know, I, I see educator in there and, you know, as far as your extensive background, like I was like, how can I get this down to just eight questions? You know what I mean? (laughs) And in looking at it, um, you know, I've recently gotten into doing, um, educating, I'm doing teaching a podcast class, and that is an enriching experience. And I'm like, oh, this is wild. And you have an extensive career as an educator. Um, so, so speaking on your, you know, and reflecting on your, your role as an educator and in shaping maybe your, how you, how you approach your life and, you know, your approach to curatorial work and and in the arts. Can you speak a bit on that, like how sort of that career as an educator has shaped and influence your your sort of our practice and the work around you know what you do. Yeah
1: you know, I view my practice that, that it sort of began in education. Uh, uh, when I graduated from co- from, from college and, and graduate school. Um, my graduate work was in human development and learning. It was that was the what actually the degree was called in, in graduate school. And because my interest was in looking at What's the potential of the creative in, of creativity an in individual no matter what they do, right? So that's where I sort of began was in education and then then and sort of my the bulk end of that certainly is my work at MICA in education and, and working uh, with the curatorial students and the program there. But in between certainly, between my gallery uh, and and the contemporary that um, that was really cur- really much curatorial work. But the difference, I would say, is the curatorial work was always audience centered. It wasn't just about it always certainly started with the artist and the artwork. That's always what the touchstone and the, of everything that I was interested in as a curator. Right. Yeah. But I was as much interested in how to connect what artists were doing, contemporary artists to uh, um, uh, to a, a lar- larger audience and and that's really where the education i think kicked in when i uh, when when i sort of was wearing two hats at you know so that i started an educator and then and then all of a sudden being a curator and the projects we did in my gallery of the contemporary we're always working with artists but i was always looking at who the audience was that it, that the museums the museum world especially back in the late 80s and early 90s, certainly we're not addressing, unlike fortunately today, that museums are, the art world is certainly paying attention and involving and including uh, uh, the larger world, not just the art world.
0: Thank you. And I I, I think it would be it would be um, almost like one of those. Uh, I like to call it a two dollar segue, you know, or continuation, with sort of that those those thoughts around curation. Um, how how would you define the role of a curator? Um, you know, considering your your experience and, you know, what ways has it evolved? You know, and what ways has it remained consistent? You know, with you know what it was earlier in career to to now.
1: Yeah, that's a that's a really that's a really important thing to for me always to talk about especially uh, to my students that that evolution uh, on my own i would say uh, two things uh, i think the evolution had for me had to do with for many many years of course i was working uh with various audiences and various communities uh, throughout baltimore with artists and with organiza- with organizations uh to really sort of connect you know what artists were doing to people's You know, everyday life. But um, I guess what happened was after I retired um, about six years ago, talk about the evolution, um, I realized that there was a whole audience that, and both audience and artists, that I had completely neglect, not necessarily neglected, but weren't even thinking about. And that was audiences with audience and artists with disabilities. And so my all since my, my retirement, my studies and my volunteer work has been working with adults with disabilities. And that I, I really make sure when I talk to especially uh, young people, uh young curators or um People in the museum field, that um, yes, I'm very proud of the work I've done in the past, you know, with the contemporary, with Mike and, and all that, but there's always something to learn. And that was for me learning that. And um, so that's been a real evolution for me. It's not over, certainly not over whatsoever, but it, it is, I would say, now. When I'm work when I'm working on, no matter what project it is or if I'm working with uh, other uh, young educators or curators, I always say, let's look at this through a disability justice lens. What would this look and feel like? this same project, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I always sort of put that question out to people. instead of, you know, we're we're so used to, for many, many years, that those kind of um, um, considerations or accommodations come at the end. Mm. We we develop a program. We you know have a project that's related to that. Instead of looking from the beginning, what would this feel like with audiences that are both visually impaired, hearing impaired, have intellectual disability? You know, the list is a very large list, right? Twenty five percent of our population has some form of of visible or invisible disability so um that's the evolution is for me that i always want to share the constant i would say though you asked me what is the constant from the beginning is this and that is the kind of questions the kind of questions that i've always asked and that is who cares mm. When my students would propose propose their projects or their thesis or what they're doing a curatorial work and all i would listen to all and my question would always be at the end who cares like if you can't if you can't answer it other than oh the community or baltimore or artists like you you sort of you've you automatically siloed what you're doing you know, and mm-hmm. and that your vision is very narrow in that regard. And I say that I always would say to my students that my test audience was my Aunt Darse. We all have an Aunt Darse, right? My Aunt Darse knew nothing about art, cared nothing about art. We always, either my gallery or the contemporary or Micah, I would always take her to see the projects. And her her assessment would be, be, be provided guidelines for me all yeah. the time. The kind of questions that you and I might think are very naive or innocent, or in, in, in the long run, extremely complex sure. to answer and address. And so that's that's the constant, is always me saying, who cares?
0: Yeah. That's, that's the same vein. And, and I always like those moments when business, when, when art come together, that sounds like when someone's like, who is your uh, target audience, you know, who would listen to this podcast, who, and having to go through that, that sort of process regularly, of, you know, and like, I like how you said, you're, you've siloed that it. it's very, it's now a very small, almost niche. And maybe some things should be that way. But also, is that what you're intending to do? So really thinking through, who's it for? Or who, right.
1: and and okay. and you make that you, Robert, you make that very clear in all the pro all the podcasts that you talk about and what you do. I mean, because it's very clear that you your emphasis is always not just Baltimore, but it's a, what is the community impact on mm. what someone is doing. It's exactly what I'm saying. You know, you're you're looking at you're interviewing people to sort of get to that. I think try, who are the people that are doing things in Baltimore that have an impact on a community that are not just outsiders or not just parachuting in to communities that really have some kind of, uh, you know, connection to yeah. what, what people are doing. And it's clearly the, the the range of the kind of uh, people that you've you've been interviewing the last couple of years. Uh, that's I, you can see your own curation of who you're interviewing is very much like that. Uh, so. Thank, you. I, thank I, you. I congratulate you uh, on, on that. Yeah.
0: I, I appreciate that. Um, thank you so much. Um, and now I want to s- switch gears a little bit and get even deeper to sort of curation. Let's let's talk about the exhibition: uh, eye winkers, tumble Turds and candle bugs. The art of Elizabeth of, of Elizabeth uh, T- uh, Telford Scott. Can you give us a bit of an overview um, of of the uh, exhibition and its significance to the Baltimore and uh, the sort of regional art scene?
1: Sure. Well, I would say it's it's a it's a two part project, okay. um, and so the the really the 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 two part project is the first part certainly is the um, overview uh, and presentation of our, her work at the BMA that I was the guest curator for, um, and the, the the and also with that, I just want to emphasize that the significance of it is not just in terms of what's there at, at the BMA, but also just the subtitle, The Art of Elizabeth Telford Scott. Because when I originally did this show 25 years ago with students at MICA, <clears throat> that was the same title, but 25 years ago. We had we had not really had these kind of conversations in terms of the art world. But what does this mean? What does this work like hers, which back then were always siloed? Also, craft, women's work, quilting—you know—all kinds of decorative arts. You know, the list goes on and on. Or any any kind of uh, creative person's practice that, that people wind up putting them there. But it was never called the art, mm. her work. Mm-hmm. right? Not only was never called art, it was not in any museums back then. Now now it's in over a dozen museums including four four uh, pieces of hers in the permanent collection of the BMA now. So that was a big part of the significance of doing that show orig- originally uh, with those students and, and reaching out uh, to multiple communities back then, but the other second part, which is that this year there is a new exhibition development seminar, which is uh, which we call EDS exhibition development. So it's a year-long course where we have twenty-one graduate and undergraduate students from Morgan, Hopkins, Coppin and Micah and they're working on developing eight companion satellite exhibitions throughout the city. Yeah. So that's the second part. Now that part op- that part opens February the 4th throughout the city. So the two shows will intersect, right? The BMA show opened 2 weeks ago and then the, the that that part um, which uh, is is called um, I always have to remember the new title of it. It is called No Stone, No Stone. <laughs> I had to write it down. Yes. No Stern Left Unturned, the Elizabeth Alfred Scott Initiative. Okay. And this is what the students will, are working on under the leadership of Dion Moses, who was a former EDS graduate herself and a curatorial uh, uh, practice a grad student uh, from a few years ago that is working si- since September 1 uh, on, on this project at these eight sites. So those four schools, universities, will be sites. Yeah. Also, they will also be working at the, the Peel, the Reginald Lewis mu- Museum, the Maryland Center for History and Culture, and the Walters. So those four so those four museums including the BMA the reason people wonder why those museums because those museums and the BMA have a 25 year history with EDS so EDS started in 1998 with Elizabeth Thoffer Scott and since then they've done multiple projects at other museums including one of the ones I've learned and also the Joyce Scott uh, show in 2000 at BMA, which is now going to be revisited by Cecilia Wickman at the BMA this coming March. And that will overlap all this. So it's really going to be a celebration of a legacy of the mother and daughter throughout Baltimore. But but the, the eight sites that I mentioned that EDS is working with, each of those will have one works of Elizabeth Talford Scott. And able to develop a whole project and exhibition and programming around it so each of those there there are teams of two and three at each of those eight sites from the class that are working with the staffs of those eight sites for their gallery so that's the two parts of this that all will all come together you know by february the fourth yeah
0: that is that is robust. Um, Dion's been on the podcast, so big shout out to Dion and <laughs> um, and and also, you know, the the community component there. Like when you have eight different sites that cross multiple sections. It, it's sort of providing that 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 access and that sort of um, revisiting because you know, twenty five years, you know, it's like revisiting this and kind of blowing that out and involving folks who may not have like sort of that that top-tier experience in curation but being able to come in with an interest and it's not uh, siloed to one particular area it's in various places from the community and from from the the college standpoint the academic standpoint to the the, the different uh, museums so that's great that's that's wonderful
1: yeah well i w- i would say that that the difference in you've described what's happened in the 25 years in that revisiting is that the original exhibition did have a component with the students where they worked at three senior centers and three after school centers of children with master quilters to do do projects. They, so that was that community part of it. But but they but this really, as you say, is taking the work and putting it out there and in different contexts. Right. So in many in many instances, these students are working with these sites and they're not just working in terms of a theme that relates to Elizabeth's work. Right. But they're also in many instances working with collections. Yeah. So they're you know so they're working with African collections. They're working with African-American collections, American collections, Chinese collections. And so so they're also getting that experience to look at. Um, how, how this work perhaps has different relationships beyond just uh, her life her, herself you know
0: yeah it's it's making making those those connections and i think having you know that exposure to what on the surface may not seem to be like oh uh, and then seeing it's like oh no there is a connection this this makes sense um you know anecdotally i'll say i i remember doing an interview not long ago with a musician jazz musician and you know i was like you guys are just like stand-up comedians right he's like tell me more about what you mean by that and i started talking about the the parallels and he's like i see it now i see what you're saying and i think being able to be exposed to having conversations with comedians and and musicians uh, jazz musicians I can, you know, with some authority and confidence be able to make that comparison. And I think the same thing applies here when making and, and going through that sort of curation and seeing like, you know, this is art that has, you know, roots and symbols from Africa and the deep south, but it may connect with this sort of work and that sort of work and being able to see that that's through
1: exposure. Exactly. Because again, these students had to not just study her work, but like you're you you've you've earmarked already, like what are these African and European and African American and American traditions that you know came before her, and since then, so they are they are also having to study and learn not not just about her life growing up, you know, in a former plantation where her grandparents lived uh, as sl- enslaved people uh, in South Carolina, and her parents as sharecroppers. Certainly, they have to learn that history and and that history of America, not just her history, her her origin story. Right, But also, for many of our students, who are, many of them are not from the US, or if they are, they don't necessarily know what that history is, What what is the Great Migration, all these kinds of things. So the, the students are exposed and having to learn all those things, as you say, how to then place this work that has, as you say, multiple uh, relationships.
0: One hundred percent. So I want to delve a, a little bit into some of the specific like works, textiles I see, um prayer pillows, healing shawls, um you know family diaries, like how, you know, how is this like multidimensional approach to to the, to the work, to the curation around it, like transforming sort of the the artists to to Elizabeth Telford Scott's like narratives, like you know sort of what is the language here? How does like having sort of you maybe maybe this piece in the you know the exhibition at bma um reflect this part of the narrative versus like having another
1: piece well you you've you described it correctly multi-dimensional approach in terms of her because you know the usually the approach we think of and in, in what we you know call quilt quilts or quilting or uh, fiber work you know um have a function right they you know, provide comfort or they're on display, you know, uh, um, they, you know uh, they're blankets or blank, uh, quilts to make us warm or things to hang on the wall, right? That sort of kind of function, right? And and Elizabeth's work does, there are many works, both at the BMA shown at this and at the eight sites. Well, indeed, at first glance, people will realize, have that uh, connection to, to a function of of the work. But just as often her work has, when you look at it, there is no identifiable function at all, right? And really the, the purposes are twofold. One is healing. So many of the works were made for private use by Elizabeth, by Joyce, by friends, by family, right? They weren't for display, they were, Either in her home or given to people who really needed something to heal, or as a healing agent, and so these were works that were also turned as prayers. So they were prayers that you would have, and you would place these on. If you had a sort of stu- you had a stomach ache, you put it in your stomach, and you had arthritis, you would put it on your shoulder to feel better. And they were filled with. With rocks, especially because rocks have this healing purpose in African and African American culture, and in many cultures we know, rocks serve lots of uh, symbolic a- and uh, signifiers. And so there would be always rocks in them, but there would also be lots of other beads and sequins and f- different fabrics that were there. And they were very—they're very small. That like you would just put them in your lap, like a pillow, almost. Um, so they really had that uh, purpose of healing. And then the other kinds of work that she would do, which you're referring to, are family diaries. So if you go into the BMA, especially one of the first things you will see is a piece called Grandfather's Cabin. And what it is, it is, that it is the story uh, of her grandfather who was enslaved on, uh, in Chester, South Carolina. It is the story of him and his family and the cabin and the stars above it and the snake underneath the cabin and the and the family throughout you know the the the, uh, the plantation are all in there they're all sort of illustrated within this piece when you look at it, there's no way you could sleep under it there's no way it's it's very large it's it's what we call sort of the origin story of her life there and so that's what we would say is a family diary and so there are many works like that some actually are the story of her relationship with her daughter joyce so they're all different kinds of ways of uh, these acting as uh, as storytelling mm-hmm. that's
0: that's wonderful um you know i i i remember having a um having an interview with, uh, S B Frazier a while back and you, know, we were talking about, it's like, so are you an illustrator? How do you describe it? It's like, I'm an illustrator. I'm just illustrating this away. This is how I do it. And it's, it's always like interesting what one can do with sort of a, a fiber or sort of a craft oriented um, practice. And it's like, Oh, you're drawing with that. Or I, I had one, I, yeah. um, it was, it was an interview I did, um, Blanket on his last name. His name's Michael, and he he said that he's a quoter, but he draws it with pencils, and he has this yes. style that I was like, oh right, this is, and it's kind of shifting what one is expecting, and, yes. and it's a visual component. It, I don't know, it's just it, it gets me. It, it's it's a it's a different vibe.
1: Well, it's you're right. I mean, and I know Espy's work, and then you a good description of it. I mean, she is ultimate. She is a storyteller. Her work, you look at it. And she's telling stories, you know, Elizabeth is a storyteller. This is is storytelling. And it's interesting when my students would look at my previous work as a curator, like, how did you, why did you choose these artists? You know, like all these artists in the world, you know, why did you, why in the long run were you attracted to this artist? It's like, in the long run, when I look at it, almost all of them, all of them I, I can look back on, that they're storytellers. Like this is their this this is their skill as a communicator, yeah. you know, telling a story, and and the stories, of course, you know, whether they're whether they're myths or they're fables or they're narrat- or narr- narratives or whatever, uh, there that is really their skill set, and I think for me that's um, to try to as a curator to learn that from an artist like to learn that this for me to see that like that's why i said about like being an advocate you know an advocate for an artist is like uh, advocate to me means like uh helping to that story you're telling to really make it really feel warm and welcoming to people that come in that they just want to sit there and spend time with it
0: yeah. absolutely so I got, I got two more real questions left um and, um, one is sort of about sort of uh, around the, the challenges, like, you know, we have like an idea, like, you know, when I look at planning out, you know, what a season of this podcast is going to look like, you know, I'm like, well, I want to do this for this month that for that month. And at the end of the year, we see what we get, right? Or we're checking in. Um, And I would imagine, you know, when the initial idea of let's revisit this, let's let's do this, this is the the idea, you know, that there may have been one vision and then it's like in actuality, maybe pretty close to, you know, what's there like now versus what the initial vision was. So could you talk about a bit about maybe some of the challenges in planning and executing the exhibition?
1: Well, I guess I was very fortunate in that it's one thing to start with a vision, but without the team, it's for me, it's it's not going to it's not going to happen, and and so for me, right, it's not just that team of twenty one students in EDS, right, it's not just. You know, all the multiple departments at the BMA in the education, graphic design, installation design, security service. It's not just all those departments, which obviously are all instrumental in making something happen. But to me, it's like having two partners like Dion Moses or like Cecilia Wickman, because Cecilia is my what they call organizing curator. At the BMA, working on me with this project, so she is the one, obviously, that keeps those doors open for all these things that need to be that we want and that vision to get accomplished, right? Because again, I'm a guest curator. Yeah, I'm not a staff there, so you know, I, I'm uh, I'm a guest in their house, you know, and I feel very grateful to be invited in and to be allowed to try many of these new th- new methods and approaches, curatorially and educationally, and especially in terms of accessibility through this project and through the EDS partnership uh, with MICA and the BMA. So um, that's the only way it could have happened. Uh, Even my original show 25 years ago, it started out as me as guest curator. And after like six months, I had this group of 17 students that develop a whole companion exhibition working in the community along with that. So it became much more than what I started out with and much better for it. And and the same with this, this V Residence project. Yeah, everyone loves the work without question. The work stands on its own without question. But the kinds of things we're talking about and engaging audiences and making uh, people really want to spend time with the work and 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 multiple access access points into the work um that cannot have happened by one person at all you know.
0: it's important it's good um and this this kind of ties ties into that this sort of final question um so so giving the you know the, those sort of those sort of distinct lines around curation and uh, around you know education you know for for some folks who you know want to approach or even have a degree of interest as a curator, you know pro, you know checking into curation as a as a field what what is that like that 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 piece of advice that hallmark piece of advice you would you would share you know for someone who's who's interested in their own offense they're not sure you know you know they they might be a podcaster you know they might be <laughs> <laughs> but what's that piece of advice you would you would share for someone who's who's interested in uh curating
1: rob I always welcome that question um <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I, especially the, that i mean previously I never welcomed that question because i you know, uh, I was too far in in the midst of it all myself. You know, but I think now that um, that I've had time to, to reflect and, and and talk to people like yourself and have dialogue about what what this work even means, right? So I say that it's a lot of practice, a lot of practice. You know, um, and the practice meaning is a combination of things. I, I would say, uh, be is that first you need to decide that whether you're an artist or not. Mm. Mm-hmm. That's where I started out long, long time ago, thinking and dreaming I was an artist. Once I realized I wasn't, but I realized I was a creative individual that wanted to work with art and artists, then I could do that. So I'd say many people, especially, in art school or taking art degrees or studying art I want to be artists right but you first have to answer that question to yourself is this what I want is this my only choice meaning this is what drives me this is uh, this is my vision this is this is the story I want to tell as an artist right I don't have a story to tell as an artist as I, I, I realized that I didn't have a story I knew how to better help an artist tell their story as a curator. So I would say, first, you have to uh, you have to address that that if curation is what you want to do, now I would say is this: the practice part has to do with this. See as many exhibitions as you want at every level, every level of exhibitions. You know whether it's a juried show, whether it's a you know a thesis show, whether it's a community center it doesn't matter see as many exhibitions as you want and meet as many artists as you can and make studio visits with this artist and see and see if you feel if you feel comfortable and you have something is there an exchange or is it just a one-sided conversation because it needs to be a one a two-sided it needs to be a conversation not just you talking to them or them talking to you so I would say that's the first thing find out are you good at and comfortable and effective of talking to artists not just as an exhibition but in a student in in their studios and, and being fortunate to have that invitation and the other thing I would say is the next step is if you are try to get some paid internships museums, art centers, doesn't matter, anywhere and everywhere, right? Because then you're going to start to meet professionals in the field who hopefully will be your mentors or your eventually your mentors who can sort of help, help you uh, with defining what your goals are, right? And then say, if you get to that point, the last step I would say is then apply for as many open calls, we call them open calls, I know uh, artists have them, but also curator. There are curatorial open calls that you can apply for a proposal to do something uh, there. And so I would say submit proposals for open calls, so you again can have that direct experience. But that's sort of the order in, in my mind, like a sequential thing. And you just practice, practice, practice in each of those, and you know. At the end point, so to speak, it will lead you somewhere It may not lead you where you think you start in the beginning, but I think it's gonna uh it will lead you to some place that um that has a relationship uh, to to your life, to who you are you know
0: thank you wow that is um you know i, I hear i hear more and more a a version of that um and i'm I'm hearing in it sort of reputate, rep, reputations, repetitions, like, you know, having those instances, being around, being in the scene and there are, you know, I I do this, you know, and I guess, you know, touched on earlier, you know, being an educator now, uh, and feels really weird to say that, uh, but being an educator now and then having sort of those reps and been a podcaster for 15 years. So, you know, I'm revisiting some of those things I thought, you know, were, right you know, just, you know, done and, and they were reflexes. Now it's just like really thinking through it because I'm helping shepherd people in it. But it's, again, I can speak confidently because of those repetitions and because, um, I'm where podcasters would be at and I'm doing things that a podcaster would do. And, you know, there have been instances where the public radio folks have called and reached out and things of that nature. Sure. So definitely, sure. I, yeah. I, see, I see exactly what you're describing. Yeah. righty. Um, so that's kind of it when it comes to the real podcast. And thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, and you know, I, I, I got two last things I want to do. You know, sort of the rapid fire portion and the the shameless plug. Last, last, you know, sort of thought, final thoughts. So I'm going to go with the shameless I mean, with the rapid fire portion. To start off with, and as I tell everyone, don't overthink these. They're goofy questions. They're they're, they're real life questions, though. All right. Um does your morning generally start off with coffee or tea? Neither.
1: Oh, okay. No, it's very interesting. My students would, (laughs) my students always have, they always had coffee. A few of them would have tea, right? And they'd always, I'd come in in the morning because I'm an early, I am an early bird. I am a very early bird. And um, people who get my emails can attest to that, but I'm a very early bird. And, and so, you know, I always started, you know, started wanting to have class at eight, eight thirty in the morning, right? And so, I wanted to be the first out there. And my students would always have the their coffee or saying their tea, and they always say to me, "You never, where is your coffee or your tea?" And I, and I would base, I would sort of laugh I said, "Well, do you think I need it?" <laughs> like. Like I'm choosing. while you're asking me? Like, do you think that I need caffeine? <laughs> and then they would go, "No, George. You, I see what you're saying. You're fine without it."
0: <laughs> it's like you're yeah. all you're all set without the caffeine.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's not to say later in the day. Later in the day, I I, I don't need some kind of pick me up. But it's you. It's usually it's usually a sweet. It's a sweet though.
0: I hear you. I I I drink a little too much coffee, so I'm going to curb that a bit. Um, And, you know, I've gotten into (laughs) green tea. I have a a buddy who's a big green tea advocate. So I've been drinking more of that. And then I start looking at sort of my total caffeine intake for the day. And I'm like, all right, I need to slow that (laughs) down a little bit. It's a lot. Uh, So this this is the second one. This is the second one. Um, So, you know, you're so I got to ask, what is and, and it might be hard what is that a a cherished baltimore landmark for you like what when you when you think of you know you think of baltimore what is the landmark for you
1: well the landmark for me but it doesn't exist any any more was was the mccormick building uh the mccormick spice building downtown and for multiple reasons but um not just because of what it represented in terms of uh being on the harbor and and old Bay and the Old Bay seasoning and um the smells that were that I re- you one remembers that now you have to go out to Hunt Valley to smell um but also it's 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 the place that my son uh was very much uh who grew up in Baltimore here also um. Uh, That he, um, that steam, steam crab, having crabs. So all this is time, So having crabs in Baltimore around, 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 you know, the the picnic table with the, uh, with the brown paper and the mallets and all that is what growing up, growing up in Baltimore was was for me certainly, and it became for him. And he he is actually a a chef out in. San Francisco, and he's adopted many of these uh, things in terms of uh, um especially seasoning in what he cooks out there in San Francisco. And so it sort of all ties back uh, to my growing up here, that, that building on the harbor, visiting it, eating there. I mean, all those kinds of things, The eating the crabs, it's just Quintessential uh, Baltimore—all the 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 eating, the smells, the visuals, uh, the blue and the yellow—I mean, all that it, to me is the landmark of Baltimore.
0: It's great. Now, and it's funny. This is one of those rare instances where I think you 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 don't have this question. I don't know how, but you kind of are touching on it. So I think I have the answer, but I'm still going to ask it. Um. What
1: is the quintessential Baltimore dish for you? Well, it would be definitely steamed crabs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, if people come visit from out of town, they've you know, been to Baltimore, you know, when uh, my son visits, um my, uh, my husband won't t- my husband won't touch them. Uh he's not from Baltimore, but uh, uh you know, he he's a crab cake. Crab cake crabs no so there's this sort of this line down in our family here about uh, uh, about the quintessential so uh for my husband it definitely would he would tell you a crab cake he would tell you a crab cake i say steam crabs that's the distinction
0: that's it's similar with me and my, my partner i would like yeah. she's she's like, yeah, you know, we're going to have crabs. Like you got to like crack my crabs. I was like, I don't crack my own crabs, so I won't be cracking yours. Uh, love you. <laughs> I was like, I'm a crab cake guy. I don't know what to say. <laughs> and, um, and that's, and that's pretty much it for, for the pod. Um, so I want to do two things here. One, I want to thank you so much for, for taking the time to join me on this podcast and and share and share your, your, your great chat. And, um, and two, I want to invite and encourage you in the final moments to, um, you know, kind of tell folks again, you know, about the exhibit exhibit and, um, any final thoughts that you have before we wrap up?
1: Well, I just want to say for people, put on your calendars, February the 4th, because at that point, February 4th, both parts of the exhibition are open at the eight sites and at the BMA, although the BMA is open now. Um, and also that... And that both go to the end of April, beginning of May, and then also to be on the lookout, obviously, for Joyce's show that ties in in mid March, which goes to the end end of July. And, but also uh, that um, I I spend I, I spend a lot of time down at the, in the here in, at the BMA in the galleries and um, please you know and happy to have conversations with people in the gallery, my the students. Uh, two of the students who, who worked on the project from ads uh aleem allison and maddie they 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 have made this fabulous sort of learning table and timeline that people can sit and relax and and spend time with and so we also try to encourage people to spend time in that room. And there's uh, lots of uh, things you can participate in when you're in the gallery. I just want to remind people when you go to the gallery, there's lots of accessibility features uh, that are aren't just for people who need that accommodation for but for everyone that that uh, you to take advantage of there. And um so we welcome you.
0: Thank you. And um folks can find out more information on artbma.org, right? That's right. And um, there you have it. Um, for the great George Sissel, I am Rob Lee, saying that there's art, culture, and community in and around your neck of the woods. You've just got to look for it.